Welcome to The Straight Stitch, a podcast about sewing and other fiber arts. Today is episode 11, and my name is Janet Zabo. I'll be your guide as we explore all things sewing. You'll have to forgive me if my voice sounds a little weird today. I'm fighting off a cold. Uh, I spent last week, I'm actually not surprised that I came down with something, but hopefully it's not too bad and I'll be able to fight it off. As a result of not being home very much last week, I did not get much sewing done, although I'm going to talk about a sewing project that I tackled on Saturday. And as a result of the issues that I had with that project, that's going to be the focus of today's podcast. Many of you know that I like to sew my own clothes. I have a lot of trouble finding ready-to-wear that fits me well and comes in colors other than muddy earth tones and sad pastels. I'm a winter. My coloring is a winter, and so I gravitate toward bright colors. Um, Right now I'm wearing a hot pink floral laundry day tee that I made myself a couple of weeks ago, and when I came downstairs, my husband said, you're very bright. Yes, I am. I like to wear bright colors and that's why I like, part of the reason that I like to make my own clothing. The other reason is because things very rarely fit me well. I'm taller than average. The average women's size clothing in this country is sized for someone who is five feet, five inches tall. I'm five feet, seven inches tall. I also have a long torso and so most tops especially are way too short on me. Um, I have had reasonably good luck with the Liz Claiborne brand. I've been buying that for probably 30 years, but even then it's kind of hit and miss. It depends on the style. It depends on the manufacturer uh, where the clothing is made. So when I find a top that I really like, sometimes I will deconstruct it. I will take it apart make a pattern from it, put it back together, and then make more clothing off of the pattern that I've created. And I have a Liz Claiborne knot top that I've done that with. So I really like knot tops. I like the way they fit. Um, These are tops that have, uh, as the name suggests, a knot at the center front. They are usually a V-neck style top. I collect them. I have patterns for probably half a dozen different kinds. They vary in how they're put together. Um, I have another Liz Claiborne knot top that I actually really like, but it's cut on the bias. And it, even though it's a knot top, it's hard to explain. Uh, The knot portion of it is cut on the fold and the rest of the bodice kind of angles out on the bias and it wastes a lot of fabric. That's the only reason that I don't make that top more often is because I can't bear to waste the amount of fabric that it requires. Um, I also have a Berta knot top that I've tried. I'll put links to all of these commercial patterns uh, down in the show notes in case you want to look at some of them or try some of them out. I also follow a YouTube channel called Fabelsa. I believe it's someone in another country. There isn't a lot of narration that goes along with the the videos, but this particular sewist 
starts with a bodice block and comes up with the most interesting tops. Um, and it's fairly easy from the video to follow along with what she's doing to recreate some of these tops. But far and away, my favorite Liz Claiborne top is the knot top that I like the most. I like the way it fits. Uh, I like the way that um, it's constructed. And that was the one that I tackled on Saturday. I'm going to take a little detour here and talk about the human brain. One of the things that I learned early on when I was teaching was that um, despite what the quote unquote experts will tell you, people have very different learning styles. I've, I've seen learning style philosophy kind of fall out of favor because again, the quote unquote experts are saying that it doesn't exist, the differences don't exist. Um, I sometimes think that these experts sit in their offices and don't actually have any real world experience because I have worked as a substitute teacher in an elementary school. I have taught knitters around the country and now I'm teaching sewists and I've seen it over and over and over again. People learn differently. Some people need to have an example set before them. That's my particular learning style. I have a lot of trouble unless I have either an example to follow or step-by-step -step instructions. Um, I need to see how things are done, demonstrated by somebody else. If you throw me into a situation where you say, make this top with no instructions, I'm probably going to just sit there wondering where I should start. I've got, I've had other students who don't want to spend time listening to somebody describe how to do something or demonstrate how to do something. They want to take the fabric and jump right in and whether or not they have a pattern is immaterial. They're going to figure out how to make the top. I've had everything in between. When it comes to learning styles, everyone is different. I firmly believe that because that has been my experience. Part of the reason that I like to have step-by-step -step instructions or have something demonstrated is because I have terrible spatial perception. I have known this all my life. One of my earliest memories is of being in a psychologist's office where I was being tested because um, I was a fairly precocious toddler and there was some question about whether or not I should start school early. I think my mother was against that because she was one of the youngest people in her class and she graduated from high school when she was 17. But my parents took me to a psychologist and I, they told me that I was about four years old at the time. And the psychologist, I can, I can see it in my head. I can see the little table that I was sitting at in the psychologist's office. And the psychologist put two halves of a rectangular block down in front of me. So they were two triangular pieces. And when they were put together, they were supposed to make a rectangle. And he said to me, can you put these two pieces together so that they make a rectangle? And I remember sitting there. I can see myself trying to get them to fit together to make a rectangle. And... I think after about five minutes, he concluded that there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to make a rectangle out of those two triangles. So 
I failed that test. Um, my parents decided that they would keep me out of school for a year. So I was actually one of the oldest kids in my class when I did start school. And when we got to high school and we had to take aptitude tests, some of you may remember this, one of the aptitude tests that they give to high school kids is to show you a two-dimensional drawing of a three-dimensional object and there are dotted lines to indicate folds and you are supposed to mentally fold the two-dimensional pieces and see and predict what the three-dimensional object is going to be. As you can imagine, I failed every single one of those tests as well. I find this really interesting because my father was a mechanical engineer and in his spare time, he built furniture and clocks. My mother owns a metal stamping plant and she will tell you that she has no trouble reading blueprints and yet they somehow managed to get a child who was completely head blind. I don't know whether I was dropped on my head as an infant or what, but I cannot, my spatial perception abilities have always been lousy. I think it's also interesting to note that I cannot play music by ear either. If I ever could, it was beaten out of me when I started taking piano lessons, but I strongly suspect that I can't play by ear and that's a deficiency that's related to my inability to see things in my head. So I remember sitting at the kitchen table one time with my then boyfriend, now husband, and my father, and we were talking about visualization. And I said to my father, I can't see things in my head. And he was just astounded. And he picked up a magazine and said, you can't visualize what these blueprints, I think it was, you know, one of his cabinet making magazines. And he said, you can't look at this and see how this goes together. And I said, nope. And of course, my then boyfriend, now husband, builds houses for a living. So he has great spatial perception abilities. And we established pretty early on in our relationship that he cannot describe something to me and have me imagine it in my head. So if he wants me to be able to understand what he's building or what he proposes to build, he has to draw me a picture. So we'll sit down to talk about something and he'll say, let me draw you a picture. Here's an Really interesting thing though, I have great navigational abilities. I very rarely get lost. You can put me down in a new city and I'll be able to find my way around without too much trouble. I drive myself around Seattle. I learned my way around Spokane, Washington. I really don't have any trouble navigating my way through major metropolitan areas. It's always been something that I've been able to do. And I don't understand why I can do that. And I can't picture things in my head. We all tell ourselves stories. And because of these, what I perceived as deficiencies, I spent most of my young adulthood telling myself that I could never be creative or do art because 
those kinds of creative endeavors where design was a major portion of it, those were only available to people who could, who had spatial perception. And because I had no spatial perception, I didn't think that I could design. I'm not sure where I finally got over it. Maybe it was just determination on my part. My husband says he doesn't understand why I chose such challenging hobbies um, that require spatial perception ability, but I don't like things to be easy, and so that may be why. But I decided that I was going to try to make a career out of designing knitwear. Um, and I just, I remembered something that one of my art teachers had told us in, I don't know, seventh or eighth grade. And she said, approach design as a problem to be solved. And I thought, well, I could do that. I love to solve problems. I love algebra. If I approach this as a problem to be solved rather than as something to be created out of thin air, then perhaps I can get a handle on it. So that's what I did. Um, I learned a lot of quote unquote rules. I learned a lot of ways to do things technically where the result was creative. So I'll give an example. When I did the master knitting program for the Knitting Guild of America, level three requires that you design either an Aran or a Fair Isle sweater. I don't have good color sense either. I will never be an interior designer. I like bright colors, but it's, it's difficult for me to intuitively know what goes together. So I decided to design an Aran sweater and I thought I need to set some parameters for myself. And the parameter that I chose was that I am going to design an Aran sweater that incorporates cables with bobbles on them. I combined that with the Fibonacci series, which is a number series that starts out one, one, two, three, five, and goes on. And each successive number is the sum of the two previous numbers. And those of you familiar with mathematics may know that the Fibonacci series is what gives rise to the golden mean. Because if you divide any two sequential numbers, you come up with I think it's 1.66666, which is a pleasing ratio to the brain. And there was an article in an old Threads magazine, I'd have to go look up who the author was, um, talking about using the Fibonacci series in designing. And if you would choose cable patterns whose widths are close to or part of the Fibonacci sequence, then you can get a very pleasing design. So you see what I mean about using rules to design, um, approaching things as a problem to be solved. So I selected some um, cable patterns that had bobbles in them and designed a sweater and knit it up. And when I was all done, I thought it was a coherent design. Um, it had 533 bobbles on it. And I remember my mentor, Jean Lampy, saying that when she heard that 
She was getting a submission for an Aaron sweater design that had 533 bobbles on it. She was pretty horrified. Um, but actually, I did pass the Master Knitting Program, and TKGA did uh, publish that sweater pattern in Cast On. It was, I think, my first commercial pattern and the first one that I had ever written. And I think I only wrote it in one size because grading that up and down would have been a nightmare. Knitting charts were another area where I had a lot of trouble. You would think that because it's a picture that that would have helped me, but when you knit from a knitting chart, what you have to do is the chart is showing you the knitting as it appears from the public side of the work. So when you are knitting or working the wrong side rows, you have to translate in your head. So if you see the symbol for a knit stitch on a wrong side row, it actually means that you have to purl that stitch because you want it to appear as a knit stitch on the public side of the work. And oh my gosh, was that hard. I remember the first knitting pattern that I tried to knit from a chart. It was a four stitch, four row pattern. It was a cable pattern and it was for a vest in Vogue Knitting. And I cried for probably the first third of that sweater because I had such trouble getting my head around the idea that you have to translate the wrong side rows to make them appear as they're going to look on the public side of the work. One of the amazing things about the human brain though is that it's very plastic. You will see stories of traumatic brain injury survivors who lost the use of one portion of their brain and another portion of the brain took over those functions. And I firmly believe that it's possible to train one's brain to do things that are difficult or that aren't native. And I certainly, after much effort, trained was able to train my brain to read knitting charts. And now it's I do it almost without thinking about it. But it took me a long time to get to that point. And I continue to work on that. I continue to work on visual, visualizing things and seeing things in my head. And I'm much better than that four-year-old kid who couldn't put the triangles together to make a rectangle. But I'm certainly not on the order of my husband who builds houses from blueprints. So you're probably wondering what this has to do with my sewing project from Saturday. I took apart this Liz Claiborne top and I traced it and I made a pattern for it. And I actually, after I did that, put the original top back together and immediately made myself a second top out of that pattern which I still wear. I still have the original top and I wear it and I still have the one that I made and I wear that one. But that was over a year ago and silly me, I thought that I was going to be able to remember how things went together. So I got that pattern out the other day and cut out the pieces and it's hard to describe what the pattern looks like. If you were just looking at the top from the front view, it doesn't look that complicated, but because it has a facing that folds down before the knot is formed because the facing hides the raw edges. 
It's a really goofy shaped pattern piece. So I got it cut out and the two front bodice pieces are separate. They have to be seamed together. And there is an order of operations for seaming those pieces together. I knew that I had to start by finishing the front edges of the facing. They're curved. And I knew I had to finish those on my serger. So that was the first thing I did. And then I tried to figure out where along those goofy curves and edges I had to make the first seam. My first four attempts were all in the wrong places. I had to take out seams. I had to uh, lay the pieces out and look at them again. I had to look at the original top. I could see where I needed to go, but I couldn't see how to get there. And at one point, I even seamed the arm size together because I picked the pieces up and saw a curve and thought, oh, they go together there. And then I got them sewn together and had to take that seam out. And I, part of me honestly wishes that I had been taking pictures along the way because if you can't be a good example, be a horrible warning. And if nothing else, that those two hours in my sewing room would have been very entertaining. So I had a baby shower to go to at noon. So I... At 11.30, I set everything aside and I thought, I'm just going to come back to this when I have a chance to think about what I'm doing and I've had some time to walk away from it. So I went to the baby shower, although in the back of my head, part of my brain was still puzzling over how this top went together. And when I came back a couple hours later, I sat down and I looked at the original and I looked at the pieces that I had cut out and I figured out what I needed to do. The second time I tackled everything, or probably by this time it was the fifth or sixth time I tackled everything, I was able to get it to go together the way it was supposed to. So what needs to happen is that the top needs to be sewn together along the facing seam first after finishing the facing edges. And once you've sewn the facing together, the two front pieces together along the facing. You fold the facing down and you sew the bottom edge of the keyhole. There's a keyhole where the top twists. So you put the right sides together, fold the facing down with the right sides together and sew the bottom of that keyhole. And then you turn the facing and the uh, body of the top right side out. Once you've got the pieces right side out, then you have to twist the top. There's an, an opening, so you pull one side through the other and you twist the top. And then you have to seam the hole closed. So I did that. And then the final step is to sew the center front seam. And as you do that, you fold the facing in such a way that it gets caught and anchored into the center front seam and closes everything up neatly. Now that I'm describing it, it sounds really easy. And if I were to go back and do it again, because I wrote very detailed instructions on the pattern piece, I would probably be able to do that. Um, I'm going to try it because I want to make another one of these tops. But at the time that I was doing it, I could not see what I was doing.
And I can laugh about it now. I, I was laughing about it while it was happening because I thought this is just so typical. This is so typical of how I sew. So I don't know that I have any good advice. If you're one of those people that has a lot of trouble visualizing things, uh, find examples, find YouTube videos, find photographs, find illustrations. Um, even sometimes with illustrations, I am left scratching my head because something that makes intuitive sense to somebody else is not necessarily going to make sense to me even with photographs. I do remember when I started learning how to write patterns, Jean Lampy said to me, you need to write patterns as if you are explaining to someone how to tie their shoes without pictures, which actually was very helpful advice, but it's difficult to do. I think too that this is why I gravitate towards certain kinds of quilting projects. If you listen to my interview with JC Breyer last week, um, you might have picked up that there's a little bit of difference between the ways our brains work. JC is very gifted at being able to read through a knitting pattern and knit things in her head as she does it. And I can't do that. So that was part of what make, made her such a great tech editor for me. And I'm sure there were times when she wondered what the heck I was saying when she was reading my knitting patterns. Um, but she was able to pick up on places where things weren't clear or things weren't correct. And it's because she's got that ability to see things in her head as she does them. I think that that's why I have never gravitated toward improv quilting because, oh my gosh, the idea of working without a net is just terrifying to me. And I can't see how to approach improv quilting as a problem to be solved. Maybe one of these days I'll figure it out. She talks about it being um, where you look at the pieces on your wall and you figure out what needs to go where. I would rather have geometric units. I would rather have rules and regulations for putting things together. I would rather rely on my rulers. Um, I don't free motion quilt that much. I like to machine quilt, but I really, really, really like my quilting rulers because um, I like to be able to have guidelines and I can't see what I'm about to quilt and so I can't make it happen. I can't get it from my brain to the quilt. I greatly admire those people who are able to do that. I've just learned to work around my limitations. And now I'm curious, those of you who are listening to this podcast, can you visualize? Do you have good spatial perception? Or are you like me? Do you have really lousy spatial perception? What tricks and techniques have you adopted to get around the challenges that you face when you're sewing or quilting? Um, I'd be curious to hear from all of you what kinds of things you do, what kinds of projects you gravitate to, whether you've ever thought that you can't do this. Um, I don't like the stories that we tell ourselves sometimes because I don't always think that they're grounded in reality. I sometimes think that they are the stories that we've heard about ourselves from other people. 
So I would encourage you to step outside your comfort zone if that's something that you struggle with and learn to tell a different story about yourself. I'm running into this all over again with fitting because I am trying to translate a two-dimensional paper pattern into something that fits my three-dimensional body. Um, I think that this is why I didn't sew clothing earlier in my life, because it just seemed like an insurmountable task. I don't know why I thought that knitting would be easier than sewing. Knitting garments, I guess, in some ways is a little bit easier than sewing because they don't have to be quite as precise. But now that I'm learning to fit myself and learning to teach fitting to other people, I feel like my brain is stretching again in a good way. Um, I'm welcoming the challenge. I, I don't think I will ever be comfortable with tissue fitting. And if you don't know what tissue fitting is, that's where you take paper patterns or paper tissue and you fit it to the body and then you translate the fitted pattern into a paper pattern. And for some people, that makes a lot of sense. For me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes more sense for me to make a garment and put it on my body and look at it and see what I need to adjust. So I'm probably forever going to be in the camp of people that have to make a lot of muslins in order to get things to fit well, rather than pinning them to a dress form and alleviating or obviating some of those requirements um, by fitting to the dress form. And that also requires that you have a dress form that mirrors your body shape. So again, it's, it's the technique that makes the most sense to you. Jenny Doan talks about it when she talks about rulers for cutting quilt units. And she says some, some rulers just make better sense to her brain than others. I'm going to leave you to ponder all of this. This is something that I think about a lot. And again, I would be curious to hear from other people what, their, what your experiences have been. I was supposed to teach a couple of clothing classes this week. Uh, I was supposed to teach a Lark Tea class down in Missoula tomorrow and Wednesday. And then I was supposed to teach a pants class in Spokane on Friday. And I had thought that maybe I would leave tomorrow and go to Missoula, spend the night, teach my classes, and then head over to Spokane and spend the night there and teach my class there before heading to Seattle for Thanksgiving. As it turns out, uh, both those classes got canceled. The t-shirt class didn't have enough students to make it worth my while to go down there. The pants class... Um, there's a great deal of interest in that class, but it didn't work for some of the students and it didn't and it did work for others. And the store owner also is having some personnel issues with her store. So we decided after uh, talking about it that we would hold off on that pants class. It's it's getting to be a tricky time of year for classes when you start getting uh, into the holiday season. Things just don't work as well for students. I've discovered that into the holiday season and then probably for about two or three weeks after the holidays when everybody just needs to recuperate, those 
really aren't good times to have classes. So I have some fairly significant sewing time coming up. I have a list of things that I want to tackle this week. I'm going to be taking a sewing machine and a quilt project with me to Seattle. My daughter lives in Seattle. My other daughter lives in Ketchikan, Alaska, and her in-laws live on the Olympic Peninsula. And for the past several years, I've gone over and spent Thanksgiving with her in-laws because I like them. They're great people. So both girls, uh, my son-in-law and my younger daughter's boyfriend, and I will be spending Thanksgiving with my older daughter's in-laws. So I'll be in Seattle um, and I'm going to take a sewing machine just so I have something to work on in my downtime. I'm probably going to be putting together uh, some tumbler blocks that I've cut. I have a bin of them. When I get scrap fabric, I tend to do a cutting session with my scraps and either make strips or if I have large enough pieces, I will make some quilt block units and I have a whole bin of tumbler units. So that's what I'm going to take with me. There may not be a podcast for the next couple, next two weeks. It just depends. Depends on how things kind of fall out with my schedule. I will try to get one put together for next week. Um, there probably will not be one the week of Thanksgiving. That Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I'm actually scheduled to take a private sewing class at the Sewing and Design School in Tacoma, Washington. I have a two-hour uh, private class scheduled, and I've asked the instructor if we could make a pants sloper. So I'm hoping to get some insight into fitting pants. Um, I, I'm doing okay now. I did the Linda, the Style Arc Linda pants. I finally got those to wear. Uh, they fit me pretty well, and I made up a pair in some bengaline, stretch bengaline last week, and I like the way they fit, but I would like to know what alterations I have to do, not only for myself, but for my students because I've also got some students here who want to have a pants class. And last week in my decorative cover stitch class, one of my students and I were talking, and I think she and I are going to try to get together after the holidays. Um, I'm gonna use her as a guinea pig, she was willing. I'm gonna use her as a guinea pig and we're going to try to fit a pants pattern to her. She's shaped a little bit differently than me, and it'll be interesting to see how what changes we need to make to get pants to fit her versus what I have to do to get pants to fit me. If I don't have a podcast the week of Thanksgiving, you'll know why. That's also the week of my birthday. Uh, this year, my birthday is the day after Thanksgiving, and I try to treat myself with some kind of a holiday around my birthday and with some kind of sewing class. So I've got the private sewing class scheduled. And then the week after on December 4th, I'm taking a quilting class with Amanda Murphy. Um, I love my Amanda Murphy quilting rulers. And so I'm really excited to take a class from Amanda herself. And no doubt I will be reporting on that on a following episode of the podcast. I've also been scheduling some interviews and those will start showing up in December and into the new year. So until then, 
I hope that you have a good week and that you get to go sew something.